If you'll take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter, Hebrews chapter seven, as we continue our examination of this passage. And if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter seven, again, beginning at verse four, reading again to the eighth verse. Now, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, and received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, The lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom is witnessed that he lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give to us grace and understanding. I pray, God, for clarity as we approach your word. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful to your truth. And God, as we consider um, the things that you've given this day, We pray that much would be made of Christ, that his name would be exalted, and his glory would be extended. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this man, Melchizedek, is shrouded in mystery. We have been on this chapter for a while. We've been talking around Melchizedek. Um, He is an enigma. He is a question. He's a hint. But he's also an answer. Um, There is enough shown for us to see the man for who he actually is. And I am convinced that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know many theologians disagree with me. I know that many who are much smarter and much wiser and and much more learned than I am think that uh, this cannot be. Um, But I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that of Scripture and... um, I, it doesn't matter whether you agree on this point or not. The things about Melchizedek that we've looked at, they're all true whether he is a pre-incarnate Christ or whether he is just a type of Christ. Um, but I want, us to, I want us to see the things that are, that are convincing me of this. And it's time finally to, to preach this sermon. Um, it's important for us to understand all that we can about this issue. Because it affects the reasons for Jesus' coming. It reveals the intention of God to save a people, and it shows us that his will has never changed. The purpose of Jesus' coming among us is always the same. He comes to reveal the heart of the Father, and he comes to redeem his own and to purchase us from captivity to sin. He comes to conform us to the likeness of the Father whom he loves. And he comes because he desires to come. This is not something that anybody ever forced on Christ. It is always his own desire. So let's start with the basic things that we can see right here. There are some hints and there are some assertions. So the very first thing, and I'm just going to run through these. We've looked at them in bits and pieces uh, for a while. But look back at verse 1 of chapter 7 in Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, So what we see here is, first of all, his titles. His titles are King of Peace, which is the name King of Salem. Salem means peace. His very name itself means King of Righteousness. And these are titles that are given to Jesus elsewhere in Scripture. He is the King of Righteousness. He is the King of Peace. Um, And then we, we look at the things that it says specifically that Melchizedek did not have. He didn't have a father that they know of. He didn't have a mother that they know of. He didn't have a genealogy. He didn't have anything that he could point to. Now, as a person himself, uh, a a walk-on character, if you will, Melchizedek appeared and was gone. He's referenced a couple of other times in scriptures. Um, As a walk-on character, that's not that exceptional. But 
the way that the writer of Hebrews packs all of this together to give us the idea that there is something more to Melchizedek, that there is something beyond just the mere physicality of him, and the importance of the genealogy for somebody who Abraham himself would pay homage to is beyond words. It's something that we really have to recognize is an important part of the consideration. But then it goes on from there, and it gives us some insight into his very nature. And the things that the writer of Hebrews says is he had no beginning of days, and he has no end of life. This is not mere verbal sparring. This is, this is a, a nod to him for who he actually is. He is something beyond a simple man. He is something beyond merely a human king who we don't hear of before and hear very little of after. He is somebody who stepped into Abraham's history for a specific purpose. And then it says he was made like unto the Son of God, and his role defines for us that he is a priest forever. He remains a priest forever. So if you're going to remain a priest forever, then it's going to require you to what? Live forever. Um, And there isn't anybody apart from Christ who satisfies that basic requirement. Now, there are also some behavioral hints that are given to us in the account of Melchizedek's encounter with Abraham. He provided for the men of Abraham. This is a role which is reserved for the one who is watching over and caring for. So Abraham's men returned from the battle of the kings, and he provided for them. He gave them food. He gave them drink. He, he came to them bringing the fullness of what he does, and that's, that's exactly what God does for us. And then he received the worship of Abraham and the tithe as his due. And worship is not explicitly stated, but it is implied in how Abraham responded to Melchizedek, especially in the giving of a tithe, in the paying of tribute. And then he demonstrated his superiority over Abraham, and Abraham um, submitted to that authority. He yielded to Melchizedek as the better, as the writer of Hebrews points out in verse 7, that the lesser is blessed by the better. So all of these things are part of it, but I I mentioned last week that the verse that convinced me when I was studying through this and praying through this years ago, that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Christ, was verse 8. So I want to look with this again and look at what it says. Here, on this earth, mortal men receive tithes, speaking about the tithes paid to, to Levi. But there he retains them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So there's a couple of contrasts here that are worth paying attention to. And the first one is the contrast of a mortal man and somebody else. So that's the first contrast that we see. And then we see this this idea that here in the continuation, we have the payment of tithes being given to these mortal men, but both there being elsewhere in heaven and also there in the encounter between Abram and Melchizedek, it says he receives them, and then it gives this statement, of whom it is witnessed that he lives forever. Right? That he lives. So who is it that the testimony of the church is that he is alive? Who, who receives that testimony? Who is, who is the focus of that testimony? It's Christ. And the language here is so specifically given so many other places in Scripture that the testimony of the church is that he lives. It can't be speaking of anybody else. And so when I, when I look at this and I take all of these things together, I am convinced without any question that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. And it's, it's Abraham's response to Melchizedek that is most interesting. Because here's Abraham, the father of the nation, the the leader of of the people that will come, the one who has received the promises, blessed of God, chosen by God, called out of his land by God, all of these things that are unique to Abraham and Abraham alone. And he comes to this man who is a priest, and he submits to him without any question. He receives that blessing, he receives that that gift of, of that blessing, and he paid tribute and in doing so, he recognized him. He's, he's acknowledging who he is in some fashion. Now, this is, this is kind of a, 
a strange thing to consider, but I, I want to change gears with you. So hold some things that I said right there in your thought and turn with me to John chapter 8. Let's see if I can unpack this for us with at least a little bit of clarity. So John chapter 8, starting at verse 50. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I was tempted. Um, but we're just going to read the tail end of it. Jesus has been having a tussle with the Pharisees, shockingly. And um, he's been talking to them about their inheritance from Abraham. They brought it up, and he's been telling them, you guys have this all wrong. So at verse 50, we're going to come into the heat of it. He says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who's dead? And the prophets who are dead, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham saw my day. I'm sorry, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So what Jesus is saying here is some testimony about himself. Let's start with that. And he gives them this basic testimony, and he says, I have in me the power of life. I have in me the power to sustain beyond death all who believe in me. You guys have trusted in Abraham. You guys have cast your your lot with him. You have said that Abraham is the end-all, be-all of everything that you are. And yet Abraham himself is dead. And your fathers have all died. And the prophets have all died. And death is a real part of your life. So your Abraham is less than me. Your Abraham is less than my God. Your Abraham is less than I know it to be. And then he goes on to say that God himself honors him. That God himself gives honor to Christ and is not arguing with him about what he's saying. So that's either a really bold lie or a really plain truth. Um, Because in the end, the things that Jesus said about God and the things that Jesus said about himself and the things that Jesus said about the world and the way that it functioned were incredibly controversial, even to the point of calling him Father, even to the point of of praying to God as Father and, and presuming to declare that he had a relationship with God It was far more than anybody around him. This is what angered the Pharisees. They were the gatekeepers to God. They were the ones who had the righteousness in check. They were the ones who understood what God required. And as they walked in their ways, the mere fact that Jesus told them, okay, you guys can have that, but you're completely wrong about who God is and what God does and how God loves us and everything else in your life, but you just go your way and have your peace. They they couldn't live with this. And it drove them mad, and it, it drove them to the point of murder. But then Jesus said something absolutely over the top. He said, your father Abraham saw my day. He rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. And they challenged him, oh, what are you trying to say? You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. He's been dead for thousands of years. And Jesus said this, before Abraham was Yahweh. He declared the name of God, applying it to himself. So first of all, let me just throw this in for free for you. Anybody who tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God has never read the Bible. Okay? Jesus very clearly declares himself to be God, and Jesus has done so on several occasions in various forms and various ways, but this one is absolutely painfully explicit, and if you say I'm reading something into it, do not miss the fact that their immediate response was, find a rock and kill this dude. (laughs) They, They were... They were incensed. And they were not incensed because Jesus claimed to be older than he looked. He didn't say to them, look, man, I'm I'm actually 2,000 years old, or whatever he might have said. 
He was declaring himself to be God. And they understood it. And, and if Jesus was not God, then he deserved to be put to death for it. Clear? But understand that God himself had a hand on Christ and was shielding him and protecting him. It was not yet his time. Soon enough, he will die for the people. But in this moment, it's not his time. And so they, they have no power to hurt him. They have no power to touch him. But let's go back to what Jesus said about Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Does that mean that Abraham understood when he saw Jesus to some degree who he was? Clearly not in the fullness of it. But that he he had some sort of understanding about who Jesus was? I think that when Abraham encountered Melchizedek, he recognized that he was dealing with God. So let's talk about Abraham's habit of talking to God. Because really, there's quite a few places where it talks about Abraham was doing his thing and God appeared to him. Now, before we can get too far into this, we need to understand what the scripture tells us. So in John chapter 1, verse 18, John says this, plainly and explicitly, no one has seen God at any time. Period. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Okay? This is the statement of Scripture. And there's more, and we'll look at some more in a few minutes. But So this, is, this has to kind of shape our thinking. The, the plain, explicit statement of Scripture is that no one has ever seen God. And yet we have encounters. Um, Jacob wrestled with, an, wrestled with God, right? Wrestled with, with the Father. And we have all these different things. So... Who were people seeing when when they saw God? Was it God the Father? No. It was God the Son in a pre-incarnate form. So when we look at Abraham's encounters with God, there's a couple of them that sort of stand out. There's a lot of times where it says God appeared, and then God proceeds to talk to Abraham. There's in chapter 15, God appeared to Abram in a vision. But most of the time, it just says God appeared to Abraham, and then occasionally it was just the voice of God. So when God appeared, it doesn't always necessarily mean that he was seeing a human form. Maybe it was the Shekinah glory shining as Moses saw the the glory of God. Um, It doesn't give us anything explicit except in two specific occasions. And I'm going to put forth the idea that Melchizedek is one of them. But I'm going to start with the second one first. So in in Genesis chapter 18, we find Abraham hanging out by the the tree um, and and chilling and and sitting in the evening of of a day. And three men approach him. But I want you to see how this reads in Genesis chapter 18. So Genesis chapter 18, and we'll start at at the first of it. Now the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he started off treating them as if they were merely strangers. But through the course of his encounter with them, it became evident to him that these were divine messengers. And one of them in particular, he refers to later on as Lord, um, a name reserved for God. So this encounter is when the timestamp comes for in a year, you're going to have a son. Genesis chapter 18 is when God came and told Abram, the clock has started. This is when Sarah heard him say it, and she laughs, and, and, um, and, the, and the Lord says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And he says, yeah, you did, but don't worry about it, it's okay. What's interesting to me as I was reading through all of um, the life of Abram this week, preparing for this, is that when God first told Abraham he was going to have a son, Abraham also laughed. 
But we don't, we don't hear any big deal about it because Abraham wasn't ashamed of his laughter. He just sort of did it. Sarah tried to hide it. Um, and, and so there, there's a little nod for us to understand that immediate repentance is always best. Honesty before God is always the way to go. Um, instead of trying to hide your stuff and pretend like it didn't happen, that, that's never the right thing to do because God always knows. Amen? So what we see is that Abraham is here, hanging out by the trees. These guys approach. They give him the time stamp of, of in a year, you're going to have a son. It's going to come from your wife, Sarah. This is Isaac. This is the promised son. The line is going to begin. This is where the descent of kings truly starts. Abraham's son, Isaac, is the, is the line of promise. This is where the kings come from. This is ultimately the thread that leads to Christ. But when Abraham encountered these men, they also had another mission. What else is going on in Genesis chapter 18? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah is getting ready to get cooked, right? So as they're done telling him about Isaac and done telling him about what they've came for primarily, the two men get up to leave. The third remains and, and the Lord says to himself, Abraham is my chosen servant. Shall I not share with him what I'm going to do? And Abraham tells, or the Lord tells Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that the, the stench of its sin has risen up to him. And then Abraham engages in his famous um, bargaining session with God. And... Um, The Lord promises that if he can find even ten men in Sodom and Gomorrah, he will not destroy it. But what we see is that in both instances, the instance of Melchizedek and the instance of of the three men coming to give a promise, the appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ, because this has to be a pre-incarnate Christ, this is a man in physical form, Okay? This is somebody that, that Abraham has shared bread with now. He's prepared a meal. This is not a, a glowing Shekinah glory. This is not a, a disembodied voice from heaven. This is a person. This is Christ pre-incarnate and two angels. In both of these instances, when Abraham encounters Christ, it's around Sodom. Right? When Melchizedek came, it was right after Abraham had, had delivered Lot from, from the kings who had gone to war and sacked Sodom and carried him off as part of their, their chattel. But here, it's around the destruction of Sodom. In both instances, when Christ appeared to Abraham, it's about Sodom, it's about the sin, and it's also about his purpose to redeem. You see that? It's about the fact that when Christ comes to us, he is coming for redemption. When Christ comes to us, he is coming to help us out of the messes that we have put ourselves into. He is coming to deliver us. Now, I want to get back to the idea that this is not simply one verse in Scripture that says nobody's ever seen God, because the strength of this whole reasoning sort of rests on that point. So listen to how God put it in Exodus chapter 33. He said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. When Moses asked him, I want to see you. And God said, nope, ain't going to happen. Or in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus said, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except for the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So not only can we not see him, we can't even know him apart from Christ. We cannot encounter God in any way that is real or, or purposeful apart from Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes, speaking of Christ, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, I'm sorry, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now, let's talk about the timing of his coming. If, it came, if he came with the idea that there is problems that need to be resolved, so we have the issue of sin, which is represented by Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the issue of 
his, his nephew Lot, who we'll talk about in just a moment. And we have the issue of, of, the, of the kings carrying him off, and we have the issue of God bringing judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, both of these things, and we have the pre-incarnate Christ having revealed himself to Abraham so that he can intervene in these circumstances. Now, the timing of all of this is not accidental. God doesn't do anything on accident. He doesn't do anything by, oh, look how convenient that was. That's not how God works. Everything is according to his plan. Everything is according to his perfect will. And the fullness of what God is doing here is a demonstration of his purpose in redemption. He is coming to give this this statement about Isaac, and he is coming to, to demonstrate the reason for the coming of Messiah. This is coupled together for a purpose. When, when Isaac is announced, he is announced in the context of an impending statement of judgment. He is announced in the context of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God had come and talked to Abraham several times about Isaac, right? At the beginning, he had told him, you're going to have a son. I'm going to give you a promise. And then Abraham didn't trust God, and, and we have the whole issue with Hagar and Ishmael, and God came to Abram again, and Abram said, can't my son Ishmael live before you? Clearly, there's not going to be any child through Sarah. She's barren. I'm old. It's not going to happen, but we have this boy. Can you give us the promise through him? And God said, no, I'm going to send you a son by Sarah. It's going to be the child that I've promised. You're working trying to fix it. It's not going to fix it. It's only going to break things. And so on and on and on, God has spoken about Isaac, but he's never spoken about Isaac in person until now. And when he shows up to say, okay, the clock is starting, one year, it's in the context of, I am about to pronounce judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It's in the context of judgment. It's in the context of God's wrath for sin. Let me ask you this question. Why do we need a Savior? Because of God's wrath for sin. Because of the fact that we are all damned apart from His mercy. We are all condemned. We are all under judgment. We enter into this world condemned already. Three beautiful little babies wandering around in this church earlier this morning, and every single one of them enters into this life condemned until God saves them. And that's all of us. That is every single one of us. And we have to recognize that truth. This is the problem of mankind. This is the heart and soul of everything that we do as followers of Christ. It is to recognize the truth that the gospel of Christ is the only hope of anybody. And there is no compromising on that fact. There is no compromising on the reality that if Christ does not save, they will not be saved. So the beginning of, of, the, of the line that produced Christ, accepting Abraham, of course, you have, we have to recognize that you, know, you can trace that line all the way back to Adam. But <laughs> the, the truth is that with Abraham's child Isaac, we have the, the statement of the promise finding its core, finding its beginning at this moment. And in that context, what do we see? We see that the Savior is promised and the clock starts in that context of judgment. Why has Christ come? Well, the purpose of his coming is important for us to recognize as well. What did Jesus say? What was his reason for coming? He came to save. He came to redeem. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 38, speaking to his disciples, he said, Let us go into the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come also. I have come forth. So both times that Abraham saw Jesus, it was in connection with sin and salvation. You say, wait a minute, how does Melchizedek fit in with sin and salvation? Well, let's think about that for a minute. When Melchizedek blessed him, it was when Lot got captured by the kings who had sacked Sodom. Okay? 
when Lot and Abram were together and the Lord had blessed them and their herds grew so much so that they could no longer stay together, Abram and Lot went to the top of a mountain and Abram told Lot, look in your direction. Pick whichever way you want to go. Choose your place. You go one way, I'll go the other. I don't want the contention between us. I love you. You're my family, but clearly we can't hang out together. So choose your direction. You go yours, and I'll go mine. And the scripture tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the valley of the Jordan, and it was a well-watered plain, and it's likened to the Garden of Eden at that time. And it says, all the way to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he saw that it was beautiful, it was well-watered, it was green, it was verdant. It was a beautiful place. And he said to himself, that's the place I want to be. Now somebody's going to say to me, you know, he just didn't know what he was getting into. But here's what the scripture says. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the plains of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Verse 13 says, But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, it's a stretch of the imagination to believe that Lot was unaware. The truth is, I don't think he cared. He saw what he wanted. The external beauty of the land enticed him. And he said, you know what? I can put up with hanging out with these evil men as long as I can have the good things that they're living by. And immediately, we have to recognize the very simple truth that is evident here, that hanging out with evil men can get you caught in their judgments. So when the kings contested and Lot's land, the city in which he was dwelling near, or was it in, I guess it was in, the scripture tells us, Because Lot had a progressive movement towards Sodom. So here he pitched his tents near Sodom, which was a very wicked place. But before Melchizedek appears on the scene, there's been this battle of the five kings against the two. And the kings have sacked Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. And the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, that they carried off Lot as well who dwelt in Sodom. So Lot has moved closer to sin. He has moved closer to wickedness. He has moved closer into rebellion against God. And again, I'm going to say, if you hang out with wicked men, you just might get caught up in their judgments. There is a principle of separation that God gives us in his word that is something we should pay attention to. And it's something that's very unpopular in the church today because it sounds unfriendly to the world. When we say to them, you know what, I love you, I want you to be saved, but I'm not going to be your friend. I'm not going to hang out with you, I'm not going to do the things you do, I'm not going to go the places you go, I'm not going to think the things that you think, and I'm not going to imbibe the things that you, that you drink down. I'm not going to live my life like you live yours. And I'm going to draw very hard, very clear, very steadfast lines, because I'm aware that the scripture is not lying when it says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. When God says that, it's a warning to his people. And we have that warning fleshed out here in the life of Lot, who started out pitching his tents towards Sodom, and then he gets caught up in a, in a war that is not his own. He's just an innocent bystander, but he's living in the wrong place, and he gets carried off. So here's Lot being captured in his sin, and what does Abram do? Well, Abram rallies his troops, and him and 300 of his servants go out and whoop up on the five kings, and they rescue Lot. And they bring him back, and it's at that moment that Melchizedek comes upon the scene. So again, we have this issue of judgment, and we have this issue of salvation having been fleshed out. Lot has been rescued from his sin. He has been rescued from his own destruction. But the scripture goes on to tell us something else about Lot. And that is that in Genesis chapter 19, when the messengers of God appear in the city, they find Lot in the city gate. 
Now, you think to yourself, what's the big deal about that? Well, in ancient times, the city gate was where the council of elders sat. And they would hold court. And they would cast judgment. And they would speak for the city. So where we find Lot is not living towards Sodom, not living in Sodom, but we find Lot as one of the leaders of Sodom. Now this is not to say that Lot was wrapped up in all the sin that was going on in Sodom. The scripture later on says he's a righteous man. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is to say that in the midst of what Lot was pursuing with his life, He was progressingly making any hope of having a life that was blessed be farther and farther away. And there's a whole lot of misery that comes into Lot's life because of these decisions. There's a whole lot of really bad things that come into Lot's family because of these decisions. Not the least of which is that his daughters thought they were the last people on the earth and engaged in incestuous relationships with Lot so that they could have children. This is all drawn out of the fact that Lot did not do what he was supposed to do. Instead, he set himself to pursue wickedness. Not wicked sin, not actively pursuing sin, but he pursued the fruits of wickedness. He wanted the good things that came with people who had a wicked life. And beloved, this is something we need to be aware of. Because how often do we find ourselves crying out for mercy to God because of the circumstances that our really crummy choices brought into our lives. Now, both times, both times, Lot is saved by God's merciful intervention. You say, well, Abraham rescued him the first time. Come on. I told you how many men he took. 300 servants. And they trounced the armies of five kings. What, were they all Rambo? Every last one of them? Probably not. God was with him. Over and over and over throughout the history of Israel, we find God empowering Israel to overcome tremendous odds and to overcome huge armies, not by their strength, but by his. So the deliverance that had just been rendered to Lot when Melchizedek appeared may be credited to Abraham, but in truth, we can recognize the simple reality that it was God who delivered Lot. And I want us to understand that though we may find ourselves eyeballs deep in circumstances that we did not actively participate in, but they are the result of the sin that we were willing to let live around us, there is still mercy and hope in God. There is still the promise of deliverance. There is still the reality that God still delivers his people. There may be consequences. Lot lost a lot. Lot lost a lot. That's funny. (laughs) There there may be consequences. In fact, there probably will be. But God still delivers his people. He still comes alongside and is gracious unto us. Now, God's working is never limited by our own failings, not limited by our own actions, or anything else. Which is why one of the most perplexing verses in all of Scripture can be found in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. So there he's called righteous. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, speaking of Lot, Dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. I got to tell you the truth. I don't understand that at all. I'm confused by that verse of scripture. To call Lot righteous? This is willful disobedience that took him to Sodom. It's willful disobedience that brought him into Sodom. 
It's willful disobedience that had him posted in the gates as one of the leaders of Sodom. And yet God calls him righteous three times. I may not understand that verse, but I'll tell you the truth. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> because, uh, pardon? Jesus is righteousness, right? He is our righteousness. And, and more than that, it is the reality that that righteousness is given to us in spite of our failures. <laughs> in spite of our own refusal to do what God says. I may not completely understand what God is telling us here, but I'm grateful that he doesn't abandon us when we mess up. And the fact that Lot can be counted in Scripture as righteous gives me just a little bit of hope. <laughs> this truth is something that we dare not miss because it's connected to the coming of Christ and it's connected to the promise that has been made to Abraham. And all of it is wrapped around not only the timing of his coming, but the acknowledgement that Abraham was encountering God who said through his coming and through the timing of his coming why he came. Why has Christ come? To save. Christ has come to deliver the people of God. He has come that we might have life. He has come that we might have life abundantly. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Above everything else that Jesus came to do is this overarching truth of salvation being the work of the Lord. Now, hear me carefully. We sometimes can be very guilty of looking down our long and sanctimonious noses at those who make poor choices. And while they need to hear the truth and they need to hear the gospel, they do not need to hear our criticism because we would be doing the exact same things if it weren't for the grace of God. Jared points that out to me a lot. I appreciate it. <laughs> we would be doing the exact same things if it weren't for the grace of God. So we have to somehow navigate these waters to say, look, this requires us to be gracious. When Abraham was contending for Sodom, do you think Lot was in his mind? You bet he was. Abraham knew where Lot was. And he knew what Lot was doing. He understood that Lot wasn't just near Sodom. He was in the city. He was, a, he was a leader in the city. Abraham could not have been unaware of this. He was contending for his nephew. He was contending for somebody that he loved. And when he rescued Lot, is there any hint in Scripture that there was some sort of condemnation poured out on Lot because, oh, I had to come rescue you, you miserable slug? No. And neither does God deal with us in that same vein. He's gracious and he's merciful. And scripture again and again and again attests to the greatness of God's love for his people and for his determination to save us and to deliver us from the ruin of our own bad choices. Yes, he wants us to be sanctified. And yes, he's working at sanctifying us. And yes, he calls us to righteousness. And he holds us accountable when we're not. But God never casts aspersions on us. He's gracious and kind, and he's gentle. And the people of God, we need to take that lesson. Yes, we need to speak the truth, and we need to speak it plainly, and we need to speak it powerfully. But remember why Jesus came. To seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and to save, and he also came to reveal the Father and to reveal the truth. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus is having a conversation with Pilate. This is actually the last words that Pilate will say to him. And, and Pilate, Jesus has said, if I was a king in this world, then my people would fight for me. And Pilate says, oh, are you a king then? And Jesus answered in verse 37 and said, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate then immediately demonstrates that he is not of the truth and says, well, what is truth? <laughs> but what did Jesus say he came to do? 
In that, he came to die. He's standing before Pilate. He's about to be condemned to death. I came for this purpose. And in that coming, in that sacrificial coming, in that surrender of himself to redeem his people, is the truth of God. What is it that, that most people who are, who are not followers of Christ take offense at when, when the gospel is presented? The statement that they are sinners. And the statement that they need rescued. And the statement that there is, that there is somebody who is greater and truer and stronger and wiser and holier than they who will reach into their circumstances and at no cost and with no help from them will deliver them out of their sin. And that offends our pride. It offends our humanity. It offends our own self-worth. All of which should not only be offended, but should be crushed. Because it is the mercy of God that saves us. And Christ was demonstrating that truth. Did he have the power to call off the crucifixion? Absolutely. At a word from him, legions of angels would have come and laid waste to Rome. Not just the city of Jerusalem, not just the centurions who were there, but everything. The whole earth would have been destroyed. But instead, he submitted to the will of the Father and yielded his life, dying as an atonement for our sin. It's his grace that has given us this. And in the end, he comes to lavish that mercy upon God's chosen people. John 10.10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now listen. There will be a day of reckoning. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And, and Abraham's encounter with God and Abraham's reasoning with God and bargaining with God and, and doing what he did, that's kind of where we are right now. If we can take the picture given to us by that encounter and apply it to the world today, we are the ones who are seeking out righteous men, men who will bend the knee to Christ and who will yield to the Father. And we are the ones who are contending on their behalf. And we are the ones who should be contending with the Father in prayer. And we are the ones who are carrying the message of the gospel. Had Abram not interceded, we don't know. God willed Abraham's intercession. It wasn't that Abraham convinced God of something he wasn't going to do. But carry the logic for a moment. God said, I'm going to destroy it. And if Abraham had just been silent, what would have happened? God would have just destroyed it. And that would have been the end of it. Now, it's God's mercy that he provoked in Abraham something that rose up and argued and had this whole conversation and went through all of that. And again, remember that God is the chief cause of all of our actions but that doesn't change the fact that we're in that place right now. We've been entrusted with the gospel and we have been entrusted with the message that Christ Jesus comes to save. And wherever we find ourselves, wherever we see the world around us being what it is, there is a call incumbent upon us to deliver the message of the truth. Abraham saw Lot in his misery and what did he do? He rescued him. Abraham knew of the impending destruction. What did he do? He pled with God. So both halves of this are in our hands. We need to do actively what is in front of us to do, faithfully to our God. We need to be active servants of righteousness and fight the fights that are in front of us. But we need to do it on our knees, seeking the face of God and begging his mercy and seeking his favor in everything that we do. This is the heart and soul of this. So when Christ came to Abraham, he demonstrated for us the reality that there will be a day of judgment and there will be a day of reckoning. And that day is coming. But if that day is not yet, our job remains undone. And we need to be faithfully doing what God has put in front of us to do. Until the day that he returns, until the day of that final end, we are called 
to fulfill what Christ has done. Because his chief purpose to seek and to save that which was lost involves him being lifted up and drawing all men to himself. So let me ask you the question. Are you calling men to Christ? Are you speaking the truth of the gospel? Are you living out the command that has been put upon you to stand in the place of Abram and to both fight for what is righteous and to contend with God for those who are trapped? Because that's our calling. Yes, the motive power to save comes from God. Yes, the reality of God's mercy comes from Him. Please do not mishear me. You are not going to convince God of doing anything that he does not want to do already. You're not going to change his mind about anything. But what I'm asking is, are you willing to be faithful to what God is calling you to do? Because that's the part that's in front of you. That's the place where we stand. And Abraham, with all of his mistakes, and there were plenty still fulfilled his calling. And Lot, with all of his mistakes, and there were more, is still called a righteous man. Beloved, hear me. This is the glory of God. It is the glory of God to save a people. And I can tell you this for absolute certainty. He's not done yet. Do you know how I know that? Because we're still here. He's not done saving a people. There are still people in your reach who need to come into the kingdom. There's still people that are in your life. There's still people that you have influence over that need to hear the gospel. Speak it. Live it. Show them the fullness of who God is so that His glory might be made manifest to the nations. Who gets the glory in all of this? It's God and nobody else. It's God who gets the glory. It's God who stepped into humanity and God who stepped into the life of Abraham. And when He did it, things changed and people were delivered. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be found faithful to do the part that's in front of us. Help us carry the gospel. Help us carry the message of the cross. Let us live this out in such a way that Jesus would receive the fullness of his praise and glory. God, he deserves all praise. He deserves to be worshipped by all men and all women in all places and at all times. So let us participate in the accumulation of the glory that Christ deserves, that we might lay it at his feet. We want the king to be honored. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray all things. Amen.